This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. So here, here's a question. Can we form a notion of we that both preserves us as individuals and forms a collective version of us as Americans invested in equity? Or is that just a fantasy? These are some of the questions Claudia Rankin explores in her new book, Just Us, An American Conversation. Ms. Rankin has authored six collections of poetry, three plays, and just a few of her numerous awards are the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Penn Open Book Award, the MacArthur Genius Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. She is currently the Frederick Eisman Professor of Poetry at Yale and is the co-founder of the Racial Imaginary Institute. Her new book reminds us we cannot discuss racism without discussing whiteness. I am thrilled to welcome Claudia Rankin for a conversation. Welcome, Claudia. Hello. Hi, Roxanne. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So your course at Yale is titled Construction of Whiteness. And how does using whiteness as the construct for a conversation on racism change the dialogue? Well, um, Teche Cole has this wonderful essay where he talks about um, how people have notions of racism without racists. Or, <laughs> you know, notions. It's a trick. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's one that has um, informed American um, sense of whiteness as a thing that is separate from the violence um, of this country. So, I wanted um, the class construction of whiteness to show how white supremacist orientation was at the foundation of the building of this country. I mean, you know, basically the country was colonized. Um, Native Americans um, were eliminated. Black people were brought over as slaves. So those, that system was the beginning of this country. And, um, and then in order to in part justify this, you had eugenics. You had people saying that white people were inherently more human than the black people that were turned into property um, legally. Obviously they were still people. But um, so what were the investments of whiteness? How did it look? Why did people wanna enter into it? If you remember Italians, um, the Irish, Greeks, many people came over to this country and were not allowed in to the notions of whiteness. They were considered the black Irish, the black Italians, Mediterraneans. And so this idea that white Anglo-Saxon men, and look at, you know, look at the Congress, look at um, the Senate, look at the Supreme Court, white Anglo-Saxon men would be in control of our lives. And that meant they could vote, they could um, own property. And that fundamental uh, structural mechanism 
becomes the mechanism of whiteness that we have been fighting against. Women trying to get access into that, African-Americans trying to get access into that, people jostling around that construction up until 2020. And Claudia, one of the things that I think you do so well in the book is, you know, you started uh, the response by saying, how can you have racism without having racists? So I think a lot of people, white, white men would say, no, I'm not racist. I, I have no white privilege. And you recount very successfully in the book examples that maybe to a white person you might not have even noticed, but that are just so basic and taken for granted. So let's start with a couple of stories from the airport, because two of those just blew my mind. Uh, the, the straightforward one of, the, of a man cutting in front of you, and then the one where two lines were formed. So share with us those stories. Well, um, as you know, I travel a lot for business. Um, and so I'm traveling in business class or first class and I'm standing in the line, you know, the line for business class or first class. And the line, it's an international flight. So um, it's very, there are many seats. So it's a, so the line is actually pretty long. And a group of white men come and I see them talking about the line. I'm standing in line watching them. They come up to the line. They're like, is that the end of the line? Why is it so long? And so they form their own line <laughs> next to us. And um, there's a white man standing in front of me. And I say to him, now that is the height of white male privilege. And he cracks up. But it didn't change the mechanism. They were able to merge into our line and enter the airplane you know, faster, who cares? But that, that I can never imagine a group of black men doing that and not being called out. And, and yeah. people who say to me, no, I can imagine that, then I want to be in their world. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, certainly, it's not inside of my imaginative possibilities. So, so when you told that story, the thing that, I mean, I get the I get the gall of doing that. I've seen it at the airport. Mm -hmm. But what was striking to me is that the the airport managers at the gate let the lines merge. So well, I think there was a, a a woman there. I think white men are the reason they take the the positions of power that they take is because people allow them to have it yeah i mean look at the executive branch imagine president obama doing one and a half things that donald trump has done in the last three and a half years yeah do you think that the impeachment would have gone far fallow if that had been the case I mean, we are complicit in the behavior of the centralizing of whiteness. Yeah, and, and you know, when further in the conversation, we'll get to uncomfortable conversations and how you navigate them. But before we leave the airport, let's talk about the even simpler example where a man 
just came up to cut in front of you? Um, the, I mean, this is, and the, first I want to say that the book is organized in such a way that the essays are on the um, right. recto side and um, other associated material is on the verso side. And so one of the things about being in liminal spaces, these spaces that are neither here nor there, like the airport, is that you're there and people are somehow not accountable Mm -hmm. anything beyond that. So I think when people come and cut in front of Black people, they feel as if, um, I don't even know if they see, I really don't yeah. know. I can't, I'm not going to speak for white people. I don't know if they see Black people <laughs> because sometimes it's so fluid that you, you're interrupting them when you're, when you're telling them um, that they've cut in front of you. And so I, I, in the, I'm not sure which story you're referring to because- So it was the one where he presumed you couldn't be in first class. Oh, that, that- Oh, that was on the left side. Yeah, that was, um, that, this is why I brought up the other side. That might've been a woman who came in and cut in front of the Reverend and, and this, and I wanted to include that because that's also happened to me. Um, and it's a, it always happens like this, like white women in their business suits, they come running, they think they've missed the plane or something. And then they swoop in and they get in front of you in the line. And then you tell them, I'm in this line. They say, no, this is first class. Mm. And the presumptions of and that they don't even moment. get what they've done. Yeah, but you know, it's like, no, 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 no. It's not, because it's never really aggressive. It's like, no, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. It's this presumptive. Is class. <laughs> yeah. this, this belongs to me as a white person. It doesn't belong to you. And I have many, you know, in the book, we have one or two stories, but I could spend the rest of this hour yeah. recounting incidents like this. And so could many other um, African-Americans that I know. Yeah. And so we're going to say on the airplane again, because this was another um, story that was entirely different and brought up something that I thought about a lot as you talk about it. So you're on the plane and you're with somebody that you immediately connect with. He's lovely. I think the term that you use, it was as easy as kicking a ball on a fall afternoon. And he was talking about working on diversity issues at his company. And then he used the term, I don't see color. And um, in another book I was reading, I came across this Pat Parker poem, which felt very applicable. For the white person, the, the name of her poem is for the white person who want to know how to be my friend. And the first two lines of it are, the first thing you do is forget that I'm black. And the second thing you must do is never forget that I am black. And so share with us the conversation you had with him and with yourself about what does that mean when somebody says they don't see color? And he meant it, I think, as a well-intentioned statement about his 
generosity, his lack of racism. Exactly. I mean, he's somebody who, um, as you say, when I, I was sitting next to him on the plane and we started talking and you do sometimes just have a rapport with people. It doesn't matter who they are. And, and we were here and we were there. And then we began to talk about um, diversity. And I think in part because I'm interested in that stuff. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely would have began to ask questions around that. And then he, and everything was going well. And then he said, I don't see color. And I thought, uh-oh, what's happening? And I know that that phrase is tied to Martin Luther King's notions of, you know, in people's mind that one day we will get to a place of equity and equality where we will all be the same. But that, that idea, and this goes back to your introductory comments, that idea that we will ever be a single public is a fantasy. Mm -hmm. It will never happen. It, it, it just won't. And, um, and that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should not be a single public because it, it, is, it is not feasible. We are all different, even women from men. I mean, right now, a lot of women are feeling anxious about the, 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 the pick for the Supreme Court. And that's because the, what's at stake for us and her, our daughters uh, um, and our sisters and all the women we know is very much in front of us mm -hmm. in terms of a you know, sense of autonomy around our own body. And I don't expect men will feel that same urgency. Some of them understand it, but they might not feel it. And so I think this idea that we have different publics with different is something that we have to, to keep, even as we're working towards similar notions of, of equity and equality. And so when he said to me, I don't see color, I said to him, you know, ain't I a black woman? Because I, I wanted him to acknowledge that part of the reason why we were having the kind of discussion we were having is because he actually saw me as a black woman open to having that discussion. And, and maybe this is a little ungenerous, but I thought, you know, you're gonna go home and tell your wife, not that you had a nice chat with a woman, you had a nice chat with a black woman. Mm. Um, because I have been around enough white people to know that there is a sense of, of um, you know, it's kind of like, I did a good thing. I talked to a black person today. Mm -hmm. How gracious. <laughs> you know, it's a, isn't that great that I did this thing? And I'm not saying it's conscious, but it's, it's, yeah. it's happened enough that I, I sort of assumed this is how it was gonna go down. But he, you know, he did a really um, generous thing. Um, I wrote this piece originally not for the book, The White Men in Airplanes. I wrote it for the New York Times. And when the t I sent it to them thinking, it's not news news, so they might not publish it, but they said, no, 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 we want to publish it for the magazine. And then I felt horrible because I had had such a nice conversation with him and he was such a nice man. And luckily he had gotten in touch with me about having dinner with my, my husband and his wife to meet in the city. So I had his information. We never actually got to meet for dinner, but I wrote to him and I said, you know, 
this piece is going to be published in the Times, and I want you to know that it includes our conversation. And why don't you just read it and let me know if there's anything that you think is misrepresented. And also, if you want to write a response, mm. uh, I would really love that. And, and so he did. And so his memory of the conversation is also part of that essay. Yeah, I love that. I loved his letter. Yeah. You know, because it was both um, accepting your observations and trying to learn from it. And also trying to learn from himself, I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, part of what he said in his letter was, look, I told you stuff that wasn't true. And I have no idea why I did that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, growing up, race was never an issue where I grew up. And then I get home and I realize the white kids were really nasty to the black kids in my high school. And mm -hmm. it was something that was right in the foreground. So why am I telling you it was never an issue? Yeah. You know? And I thought, so it wasn't really, it was suddenly, I think he became hyper aware about the, his investment in creating a fiction of white benevolence. Yeah. So, so Claudia, one of the things that um, I think a lot of us think about these days is how to have conversations about the issues, how to have them um, with our own cohort that might be all black people, all Asian, all white, and there is both an uncomfortableness about it and there's a wariness uh, by people that they'll say something wrong or the bar's too low that they're going to offend somebody. But that what makes me sad is that means we're not having a conversation. And we'll get to your subtitle, but you talk about an event at a dinner party um, that I thought represented a microcosm of what we all deal with all the time and kind of crystallized a kind of a silencing that inadvertently goes on. So could you share what went on and how the evening ended? Well, um, we, we a, a number of families in our neighborhood um, had to get together. It was a dinner that was brought to, where the, the parents had to come together to think about child transportation issues and stuff like that. And so these were not people we knew, you know, these were people who were parents of um, kids that go to, to school with our daughter. Yeah. And um, so we were meeting many of them for the first time and it all was going fine. We sat down to dinner and one of them was writing a book on Donald Trump. And, and he said that, you know, um, given the fact that 62% of white men voted for Donald Trump, they voted for economic reasons. And I said, well, you know, Donald Trump ran on the wall. He ran on, on nationalism. He ran on racism. 
So why don't you give those white men that 62% and the 47% of white women, the and he received the plurality in as much as we can trust the election, um, the benefit of the doubt in that they heard what he said and voted for what he, the platform he put forward. And he was like, no, no, no. And then he said, um, I said that, that it was given how racism works in this country, more white people should have been aware of the fact that he was going to be president. And he said, well, we don't have a crystal ball. I don't, I don't claim to have a crystal ball. I can't, I can't, I didn't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? You're, you're in the position to write a book about it. And now you're saying you couldn't tell that if you look back on this country, that people would not then support 62% of white men. That's a lot. And, um, and so the, the, the discussion got a little heated and across the table from me, a woman, a white woman looked at the tray of brownies and said, oh, those brownies are so, they look so beautiful in that tray. <laughs> and it was that moment where as I was sitting across from her, I thought, you know, I have a kid. I know how this works. This is one of those diversion moments. This is a moment of silencing. So I said, are you trying to silence me? And I knew when I was saying it, it was impolite. I knew it meant that the entire tenure of that dinner was going to change, but I decided to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it did play out that way. I, it's funny because I ran into the woman who threw the dinner party at, at school later on and she said to me, I, you know, I haven't seen you since the last dinner. I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> why is that? I'm like, you know why and I know why. You know, so I've never been invited back. And it's because there are ways, there are modes of civility that we have been taught to maintain so that the fictions around the facts can, can compel, you know, propel people forward so that they don't have to deal with the reality yeah. of, of, of my reality, you know. And, and Claudia, so the thing that struck me about that was, for one, one of the quotes uh, from a 19th century humorist that I always like is that we like live conformists and dead nonconformists. You know, we never, we never like the one raising their hand and causing a ruckus. You know, we want them to be quiet. So the question I would have is, so you said that and you knew or you had a sense of what the repercussions might be. What would have been, what is a way to then have those conversations? Either maybe table it for that moment, but not forget it and reach out. But how do we move the needle so that doesn't just become an evening where, as you said, you know what, she was another angry black woman. You know, we're just not going to have her again. How do we move the needle so that there, we can reach some understanding that what they were doing was part of the problem that they're accountable for? Well, what if, what if at that dinner, she, instead of pointing to the brownies, had said, you know, Claudia, 
given the way um, Black people have been treated in this country and what happened at the border and what happened with DACA and the way um, um, immigration things were going, we should have known that. You're, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Or she could have said, um, well, the fact that we didn't know, what do, what do people think caused us not to know? You know, there could have been a moment of curiosity yeah. about my own positioning. Right. Rather than the flight from it. Or another way would have been to be like, um, we don't want to talk about that. Do you want to leave? Now, that's very rude. But if she had said that, I would have smiled. I would have, I would have laughed because that is like breaking the bounds of the trajectory of silencing in another direction. And, you know, so you would just, you would have had to readjust. I would have had to readjust in a way that would have asked another thing of me, which would have been interesting to me. So, you know, and, and we do that sometimes with our friends, you know, when our close friends were able to not flee from the moment, but break it open in another direction. Sometimes it's about, you know, about close reading. It's really about having curiosity about someone other than yourself, mm -hmm. you know? And, and do you think as white people engaging in these conversations, that we shouldn't worry so much about saying the wrong thing if in fact our intention is to have a real dialogue? I think so. I mean, I think the worry about saying the wrong thing, if it means that nothing gets discussed, is a maintenance of the, the, the structures as they exist. Yeah. I mean, you have to take a risk. And, you know, in a way, I think um, what we have seen is that how can you have 400 years of the same thing and then worry about decorum now? Yeah. You know, like, like this is not, we are in a constitutional crisis, a moment of constitutional crisis. We are at the brink of a fascist regime coming into power. I mean, and those are the reasons really why I wrote this book. I mean, I'm like, people, we are about to see our notions of democracy shattered before us. To bits. To bits, we have to step up. We cannot allow this to go on and we cannot be passive. And we have to understand how white supremacy is at the root of this. Mm. I mean, you know, what is being taken advantage of is racism. I mean, the American public was manipulated because Donald Trump depended upon the racism. Yeah. Yeah. He knew it. He, you he know, knew it. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the uh, inverse of Lincoln's are better angels. He, uh -huh. he understood the basic that, you know, the worst of us and appealed to it and sort of opened the Pandora's box. So, so it, I do want to spend a few minutes on current events because I do feel like 
the conversation that you're engaging us in in the book. So I, I looked up, I always had in my head that Martin Luther King um, encouraged patience. And so I did a little research to say, did he actually encourage patience or didn't? So what I found was his letter from a Birmingham jail, which was in 1963. And what he said is, there comes a time when tired people have had enough. They rise up, they act. We have no alternative but to protest. For many years, we have shown an amazing patience. We have sometimes given our white brothers the feeling that we liked the way we were being treated. But we come here tonight to be saved from that patience that makes us patient with anything less than freedom and justice. And so the question I have for you is, have we been impatient enough and has George Floyd's death and the activism that it has generated suggest we're at a pivot point? Well, I think, I think we don't know that yet. I mean, I, I think the activism has been incredible, whether it will amount to real um, institutional change, we can only know that as the future unfolds. Mm. You know, because one, one, it's very important that we vote and that the president administration, the sitting president is, um, um, I, I'm gonna use the word ousted because it feels like he wants a revolution, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, but once, what happens when Biden and Harris come into the presidency, we have, you know, we could have a Supreme Court that prevents any change from happening. We could have a Senate that prevents any change from happening. And then we would move forward exactly as we are. So the question is what kind of systemic change will happen? Will people remain accountable? Or will they feel like, oh, we took care of it by voting? And then that means their companies, their homes, every place else, they go back to behaving the way they used to. Yeah, and, and you know, so it brings to mind two things. One, one is, um, one of the things that worries me is on the one hand, everyone can agree that the way George Floyd was treated is inhumane and has to stop. Well, maybe we all can't agree, but let's say most of us can agree. But I think when people think of the Amy Cooper story, mm -hmm. so she was the woman in Central Park that called uh, the police on a black man yeah. that was birding uh, in the park and she lost her job. And so there the conversation is, oh, wait, 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 wait. Maybe that's too, uh, a step too far. So, I mean, I think of those things as like gates to how the conversation about racism mm -hmm. occurs. And you raised a question um, uh, in a, one of the conversations I listened to that you had, which was, in electing Biden and Harris, are we hoping we can go back to being silent about some of these issues that now have popped up? So we got rid of Trump, and if we have Biden and Harris, can we go back to the way it was? Or are we looking for them to really institute change? What, what's your 
What's your feelings on that? Well, I can say what my fear is, is that we go back. Because mm-hmm. if we go back, it's the same. It's the same appetite for black death. It's the same appetite for inequities that um, exist within this culture. There will be no redress of any of those things. Um, so I am hoping that Biden and Harris will have the tenacity mm-hmm. to make good on some of the, the kinds of changes people have talked about in the last six months. I mean, one of the things about um, Amy Cooper is that video to me was incredibly important mm-hmm. because I, you know, for lots, you know, as, a, as somebody who's interested in literature, it had a kind of <laughs> like Greek tragedy moment to yeah. it. They're of the same family. They could come from the same slaveholders. They have the same last names yeah. by chance, just by chance. And, and, you know, when he says to her, can you put your, your dog on a leash? She then goes into white mode. And, and this is, you know, you might say, well, no, it's just her. It's like, no, the fact that she believes that she can do whatever she wants, and that he, a black man, should not be talking to her. And then she says to him, I'm going to call the police, and I'm going to tell them that you're threatening me. Now, we see that he's not threatening her, but she says she's going to do it. And she does an amazing thing at that moment. And for me, this is one of the most important moments in that video. She says to Christian Cooper, excuse me, And then she turns to make the phone call. So this kind of civility around her intent to bring in a force that could kill him. Mm. The ease with which she does that. And then we see her repeat the same thing three times and each time enact more vulnerability, more um, the position of someone who is fearful. I, you know, that I, And then people, what shocked me were the white people who then said to me, well, you know, what she did was, uh, wasn't good and was racist, but should she have lost her job? Mm -hmm. And, and I'm like, the person has called, this is in the 24 hour cycle where we see George Floyd killed by Chauvin in the same 24-hour cycle, and yet people want to claim that what she was doing was not calling that very same moment into action. Right. And that she should then go back to a job where she is working with African-Americans. Yeah. How is that reasonable? And one of my, you know, one thing that I regret is that Christian Cooper refused to work with the police to bring charges against her because I feel like until white people understand that they cannot call the police on people for doing nothing. Yeah. This thing will continue to go on. They do it because they know there is no repercussions to using the police as a a vengeance machine for their own discomfort. Yeah, and you know, Claudia, as as you were talking and I was reading the book, you know, one of the most insidious crimes 
I think we've seen in humankind forever is complicity. Yeah. And to me, because you don't get punished for complicity, it never is accountable for everything that it contributes to on, on a, a myriad of issues, racism being the latest. Being, well, being the longest. The longest. <laughs> the longest. The longest. And the latest. You're right. And the latest. It's the latest and the longest. The yeah. latest and the longest. Right. You know what? LOL will now stand for something else. <laughs> latest and longest. Um, so I want to make sure we get to two other things. So the title of your book is Just Us. And um, there's a Richard Pryor piece that, it, that you have as an epigraph in the book, and we can talk about that. But the conversation, the question I have is, is that intended to suggest change that happens one-on-one? -on -one? Or is it about the collective us, just us? Well, I think it's both. It's, it's um, in the, it, that us has the U.S. That was part of the reason for wanting it there. The, 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 um, the U.S. is a different shade than the JT. Because I wanted the us to be both the, you know, the personal is political. Right. And, and, you know, people who don't understand that the individuals who make up the institution, each of them one by one is important. This is why it's so important who gets into the Supreme Court. Those are individuals. Right. But collectively, they hold the destiny of women in their hands. Um, and collectively, they hold the destiny of Americans in their hands and collectively they hold um, all of us, you know, immigrants, blacks, um, um, queer people, all of our destinies rounded up inside the decisions of those people. But each, as they come together, they form the institution of the thing, but individually they are one plus one plus one. So I wanted to say, we have to have the conversation with the one because we don't know where that one will end up. Right. Will they be, be on the Supreme jury? Court? Yeah, on the Supreme Court, on a jury, on, you know, in the presidency. We cannot. This idea that it's the institution over there and we're over here. That's right. not exactly true. We are the institutions. It is. It, it's us. It's us. What is that line? You've seen, we've seen the enemy and it's us? Yes, exactly. exactly. Um, so the, the subtitle of your book is An American Conversation. And when we're living in a world so seemingly devoid of independent news, how do you even begin to find common ground to have these conversations? Well, I think, you know, one of the, um, the things that white supremacists has put in place in, institutionally in this country is notions of segregation. So, you know, we are segregated in our schools, we're segregated in our neighborhoods, we're segregated in, in, in many ways. And so 
it's not going to be a natural and easy reconciliation. You're going to have to make um, a commitment to bring other people in, to begin the conversation with them, to understand that nobody has all the answers. I, I read a weird review today of Just Us that said, why is Claudia Rankin pretending to have conversations when she already knows the answers? But I don't know the answers. If I knew the answers, I would be something that is not human. Right. You know, I'm, and so we all have to work together collectively. We have to show up. We have to learn from each other. Those conversations I had with white men taught me something that I didn't know before. I, you know, Peggy McIntosh um, made popular the term white privilege, but the problem with that term is that it allows people to hide inside economics. Yeah. And we should always have been talking about what it just means for white people to live, to be able to live, to be able to move freely in a country where other people cannot live and move freely inside that same country. And if we start there, we don't get derailed with the sort of conversations about how much money do you have versus how much money do I have. And so I, you know, I, that I learned from having conversations. So I think we have to begin to, to, to be a little bit curious about the person in front of us, to close read what they're saying to us, to put a little bit of pressure on them. Yeah, and willing to be vulnerable ourselves and take the risk of saying something wrong and then all of us be open. I mean, I really, I really took that away from um, reading your book. I mean, I want to read it again. I want to have conversations with people that are like me and not like me about it because I think there's um, so much to learn. And sadly, because we could, we could go on. Of course, we live around the corner from each other. We oh, I, I, well, now uh, we know this. this now, is we know. now we know. <laughs> so what I'd like to do is close with two things. If you would uh, read to us, I love the poem that you have um, at the beginning of the book. And if you would close with verse six uh, before... I close with another um, quote. Okay, okay. I just love this. What if what I want from you is new, newly made, a new sentence in response to all my questions, a swerve in our relation and the words that carry us, the care that carries, I am here without the shrug, attempting to understand how what I want and what I want from you run parallel, justice and the openings for just us. It's so beautiful, Claudia. I mean, the whole poem, but I love that. So I wanna, I wanna close with a lyric from Night Shift from the Commodores, which ah. I know from the book, <laughs> Yeah. It's a song that's a favorite, and it's a favorite of mine. The difference probably is I heard it when the Commodores first sang it. Oh, wow. <laughs> but the line, I, I'm not going to try to sing it because I don't know how to sing. Uh, but these are the lyrics. Um, 
he opened up our minds and I can still, still hear him say, oh, talk to me so you can see what's going on. Talk to me so you can see what's going on. So Claudia Rankin, thank you for talking with us so we can see what's going on. Thank you for having me. And I, I apologize to everyone for the, the various um, glitches in, well, in tonight's um, conversation. Well, I appreciate everybody staying on. And Claudia, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for the book. I really appreciate it. We're talking with Claudia Rankin, the author of Just Us, An American Conversation. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.